Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania and its people. This week, Jeffrey Work discusses his book, Gettysburg Day Three, the story of the decisive day of the decisive battle of the Civil War. Jeffrey Wirt, author of Gettysburg Day Three. Do you remember the first time you went to Gettysburg? Well, the first time I went to Gettysburg, it was part of, uh, you know, the, I think, traditional high school, eighth grade field trip. And so I would have been about uh, 13 or 14 years old when I went down. It's the first time I'd ever been to Gettysburg. I'd been a Civil War nut probably for about four years prior to that. I was about 10 years old when I first started getting interested in the Civil War. Was that around the time of the centennial? No, actually what it was in my small town where I grew up in Reversburg uh, in Center County, uh, I had a teacher who had been teaching for many years and uh, as a young man, he had sit around on Saturday nights and listen to the veterans tell their stories. And uh, you know, 50 years later, he told us the stories. And I really, that just got me. And then I was able to walk outside uh, from our school, cross the road, and there was a town cemetery. And I used to walk by and look at some of the graves of the soldiers and stuff like that, and I, got, I became hooked. What do you remember about that visit? I don't remember much. I just remember that I was in awe of the place. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you go from bus to bus, and uh, you know, one stop to the next. I just knew that I always wanted to come back to Gettysburg again when I was older, of course. Uh, at that time, I had no idea that I would be a Civil War historian. I just thought it would be a lifelong passion, certainly, to read about the war and visit Gettysburg as often as I could. How often do you go now? Oh, I try to get down as often as I can convince my wife to make the trip or something like that. Uh, I would imagine um, uh, probably half a dozen or more times. When I was doing this book, I was entirely different. I was down there. During the summer, particularly, I, mean, I might have been down once a week doing research and then walking the grounds. You mean half a dozen times a year you go? Yes, probably. Why do you go that often? Uh, because I just like to be there. I just like to walk the ground. I and, and the other thing is that uh, there's always something new to see that I haven't seen before. I remember several years ago, I went down for a conference in Gettysburg, and it was in March, or uh, excuse me, February, and we had no snow that winter, and it was strange to me how the terrain looked different. Uh, the undulations in the ground that you never see because of the crops in the fields and things like that. And it just struck me that, you know, well, those would have been places where a soldier in an attack might have been able to find shelter or something from the fire and things like that. But uh, I'm not one of those uh, necessarily that thinks that there's a, well, it is a special place. I should put it that way. Uh, there's a sense of that place about it that uh, I guess it's just uh, because you're such a, uh, I think it's, well, it is one of the most hallowed grounds in America, and it's also probably one of the most hallowed grounds in the world. And I just like going back to it. Even if I'm only there, even if we're bypassing Gettysburg, I'll probably come back and uh, uh, stop in town or, you know, just stop somewhere at the high water mark or just do that for a few minutes and then keep going through. Do you have a favorite spot at Gettysburg? <clears throat> uh, I, I'm not sure. I, uh, 
by far and away my favorite monuments, North Carolina monument, uh, was done by Borglum. I think it's a great work of art. Uh, I always like to try to go over there, but I, I don't really think so. Uh, I do like to go to the wheat field as often as I can because the men from my hometown, that's where they fought at Gettysburg, in the wheat field. So. For someone who's never been to Gettysburg, if they're going and thinking about going, how should they visit it? Well, I do think if they're going to Gettysburg and they've never been there, you, you have to go to the National Park uh, headquarters. And you can get your own kind of tour map or, and the guides are excellent. Uh, uh, the guides have to take a, pass a very difficult test. I, be honest about it, I'm not sure without cramming up in a lot of small details for all three days that I would even pass that test. Uh, and uh, they're very knowledgeable. There's also auto tours. I haven't taken any, but I've talked to people who have taken them, and they're very good. But I think your visit has to start at uh, the, the park headquarters. Now, your book is about day three, specifically. Why did you decide to write about day three? Well, a number of reasons. Uh, one, um, a very fine Civil War historian, used to be the chief historian there, Harry Fonts, had written about day two, and I knew that he was writing about day one. And nobody had written about the entire third day's battle at, on day three. The focus had always been on Pickett's charge. But uh, uh, somebody would include uh, the fighting in Culp's Hill or the cavalry actions. I've done, you know, some of my previous books had some of that action in it. But nobody had taken the, the day three, if you will, from the 24 hours. And uh, I've, I've always wanted to write in Gettysburg something. And secondly, uh, I'm an historian, I'm, I, I think I'm probably a narrative historian as much as that, and uh, it's a great story. And I tend to be drawn to subjects that are great stories, but it's a combination. Uh, I think uh, if you're a Pennsylvanian, it's probably our battle, uh, you know, that idea. And, uh, but since nobody had done the third day in its entirety, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. Is, is Gettysburg as important as people perceive it in mean, the battle or Pickett's charge? Is it, do you see it as the turning point in American history, like some historians have said? Yeah, I do. I mean, in combination with Vicksburg. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, I'm, I view the Civil War in a sense of the military aspects. I think probably the Confederacy lost the war in the Western theater, but I think they only could have won the war in the Eastern theater because of the Confederacy could not win a military war. You know, it was one of those situations. What they had to do is achieve enough military victories that they could get a political settlement to the war. So Lee comes north uh, looking for that. Uh, on, a, on You know, as they say, the high tide. But he had, uh, what he had done in a year with the Army of Northern Virginia was remarkable. The only setback was Antietam. And if he came uh, north after Fredericksburg in December 62 and Chancellorsville as recent as May of 63, and achieved a battlefield victory. It's not only the fact that he, he's in northern territory, just a little bit further, he's in actually free soil territory. He had made it to Maryland, a slave state in 62, but this is Pennsylvania. This is, you know, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, uh, the enormous implications of a major victory on northern soil. And so by not achieving that, by not being able to achieve that, Lee really, and, and the, the terrible fighting of the battle and the costliness of the battle, probably denied Lee the opportunity ever again to do that. And uh, that's why I think it, it, it is the turning point. Uh, as far as, 
uh, Pickett's charge or the, the fighting on the third day. Uh, I think it was settled as far as who was going to win. Uh, I, I think you can understand why Lee did what he tried to do. I mean, you have to try to do that as an historian. Uh, but uh, but I, I'm convinced because of the other side, the Union side, and what Meade and his subordinates did, the charge probably never had a chance. So it's a it's very climactic, and yet and it also adds this aura of decisiveness to, decisiveness to the battle, and. Um, it is, I think, certainly the most famous infantry charge of, 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 in American history. And a great, if you've been there, you know, and, and it's also in this, like, amphitheater, you know. And that's the other thing you find out, that so many men who did not participate in it were able to witness this, this magnificent uh, charge, if you will. I mean, as some, as some other historians said, there's this terrible magnificence to war. And there, there would have been that, on the, certainly, in this charge. I mean, there's, a, there's this... Uh, sublime beauty to it, if you will. I mean, we still like a parade, and you're looking at a, uh, a great parade and then until the cannons open and the, the rifle starts firing, and then that's a different story entirely. You quite, quote quite a few eyewitnesses as saying how beautiful the, the charge was when it started. Yes, I do. I, I wanted to be particular in this book. Uh, uh, one of my previous books I'd written on common soldiers, and increasingly, as an historian, you have great admiration for him. Uh, and then the other thing that's wonderful about Civil War letters and diaries, like, for instance, on like Second World War, they're uncensored. So if you want to find out that a general wasn't particularly liked, you're going to hear it in some words you probably can't repeat, that they're not going to particularly like him. And so I thought that I wanted to try to keep it as near as I can contemporary and their immediate reactions, either in a diary or a letter within a few weeks of the battle, and get a sense of the day to them as near as you can do that. I mean, I know history is artificial and you have to create it, but as near as you can. And yes, I try to, what was it like for the men there who saw it and also for the men who were in it? And uh, to be honest about many ways what they have to say, they say it better than I would anyhow. And so I quoted them a good deal. When you want to write a book about the Civil War and you want to find letters and diaries, where do you go to find them? Well, uh, surprisingly, uh, one of the best, very best places, if not the best place in the country, is not far from here. It's at Carlisle Barracks at the United States Army Military History Institute. I, if you're going to write military history of the Civil War, and now increasingly I think the other wars, because they're increasing their holdings a great deal, you have to go to Carlisle. Uh, they have, well, I think alone they have 40,000 photographs, but I don't know how many manuscripts uh, they specifically had. I know that myself and my wife, and she helps me in research, I think we went through at least 400 boxes of manuscript materials just at Carlisle. And then the other thing is, is the Park Library, Gettysburg. But, and then also you have great uh, institutions like University of North Carolina, uh, Hist Historical Society of Pennsylvania, Virginia Historical Society. That over the years, they've amassed this great body. And, and the surprising thing is we're continuing to find new stuff that people come forth and said, oh, this is my great-great-grandfather's. Uh, would you like to have it, or do you want to make copies of it? And we'll, and we'll let it sh share with uh, researchers. So it's, it's, it's there. So when you go to a place like the Carlisle Barracks, you're allowed to touch the letters? Uh, generally, it, it varies. Uh, increasingly, they would try to uh, uh, have them copied. Uh, one of the problems are uh, a lot of soldiers' diaries are very small. And I've, I've held both the real diaries 
and I've held uh, copies. I've, I've held real letters of individuals, and I've held uh, uh, diaries. Only as an aside, I, I, I will never forget it. I was doing my uh, first book, and I went to uh, Carlisle, and I had to, uh, I was holding a letter of uh, a staff officer to George Crook. And what it was was the surrender of Mangus, Colorado, the Apache warrior. And uh, it was there, and then right there it said, this is the ex of Mangus. And you know, you realize, you know, in the desert of Arizona, there's this great proud ch Apache warrior forced to make an ex, and I'm holding the same document that he had to. So I, I like that a great deal. And, uh, but generally you'll find more and more as they have time and the money to do it, they copy because uh, the sweat and so forth in your hands are, are not very good for those. I want to ask you about one two or two letters from one person in particular that are toward the end of the book. Captain John Blinn of the 20th Massachusetts says he had suffered mortal wound on July 3rd, and with a brief time left, he penned two letters home, one to his wife and one to his mother, and you quote from the letters. Where, how did those two letters, which were sent to two different places, happen to be in, get into your hands? Uh, I'd have to remember where they came from. I think they're from the Massachusetts Historical Society which I probably got copies of at Gettysburg, at the, National, at the library at Gettysburg. Uh, the park over the years have sent uh, historians out and they'll go to, I know in fact uh, they told me that some of the material that they have there from the Massachusetts Historical Society has never been used by historians because it was only recently acquired by them as far as copies. Uh, but that's how I would have gotten them. And when I saw them immediately, that's the kind of, uh, if you will, pathos, human interest that I, I enjoy so much. I mean. Uh, it's one of the, I thought, one of the great love letters I've ever read where, you know, as he's dying, he tells his wife to, you know, mourn for me, yes, but go find another love and live your life because I've died for my country as I, you know, volunteered to do if necessary. When you're going through boxes after box, do, does it get tedious? I mean, do you, do, do you spend whole days where you just get nothing? Uh, you, you do, uh, and it gets tedious. Uh, and I work from note cards, so I'm, I'm not a computer person. In fact, I not only work from note cards, I write longhand. My wife does all my computer work. She, she's the first person to look at my manuscript, and uh, it does. Uh, but I've always, one of the things I've always liked about being an historian is uh, I like to learn new things. And uh, you find that letter, or you find this account that uh, you know, very few people have seen before, or you know it's something important. Uh, and it does get to be tedious work, and, it, and it's hard work. It, though researching is actually more pleasant, I think, than the actual writing, because that's when, you know, the truth is there, there's that blank page, and you have to fill it in with something that's worth reading. But uh, I, it is, but uh, if I have to have my choice, I could probably research far more than I could sit at a desk and write. <laughs> there are a lot of Civil War buffs in America and a lot of very knowledgeable people about the Civil War. When you sit down to write a book like this, what level do you decide to write it at? I mean, what, what level of knowledge do you assume in the reader when you write it? Well, can someone I, read this if they know nothing about the Civil War? They can. Um, uh, part of it, I, when I first started to write with Simon and Schuster and, and uh, got to an editor, who I'm still with, he would remind me that you know, not all these people out there are the, the Civil War buffs, the ones who know a great deal about what you're talking about. So I try to, and you'll see in this book, uh, I, I try to set backgrounds, I try to set scenes. I mean, I reintroduce Robert E. Lee 
Now, I, I imagine the, the, the real Civil War boss, well, I know how old he is. I know he graduated from West Point, those kind of things, what he looked like physically. But I do try to reach a broader audience. I, I try to reach more than just uh, the, the Civil War buffs because uh, uh, I, I think general history pe uh, uh, students of history would like that. Uh, but when it comes down to it, uh, I guess it's, it's a book, uh, obviously, of such detail uh, that uh, the Civil War buffs demand. And as a Civil War historian, they're your first audience. And uh, they're the toughest audience probably in the country to write for because of the level of knowledge. I mean, and, and then if you take on Gettysburg, uh, this book, in the sense of when you, you start to write it, and you realize what you're doing. I was scared in the sense that, boy, oh boy, am I taking on ground that is, to some people, sacred in the sense of this is the third day and, you know, you're going to do this and you sure you know what this is because there's people out there, well, I know exactly what the 20th Massachusetts did and you don't quite have that right. And they probably do know far more exactly about the 20th Massachusetts than I might as an historian looking at the broader day, you know. So, but they're... They're a wonderful audience, but they are a tough audience. Well, there are also so many books about the Civil War and so many books about Gettysburg. How do you come up with something that brings new information to the table? Well, I, that was one of the questions I had to ask myself. If I'm going to write another book in the day, day third, but again, I said, uh, uh, surprising, there's been no modern treatment of the entire day. And what I then decided to do was to just do the research, to find more and more, as much as I can, uh, I think there's like 475 manuscript collections in this book and a, another 300 and some, you know, published sources I've used. And I think in the, in, the sheer, in the detail and some of the incidents that are there. And also, uh, what is very important in this book is to try to frame both the Confederate High Command and the Northern High Command uh, and what the decision-making was and try to resolve that. So. My goal, partially, and you're right, I mean, there's so much written on it, and many of them esoterically, uh, is nevertheless to come down and try to give it a, uh, an overall treatment that might not have been accorded it before. Uh, I like to say when I, I go out and speak that if you're going to write military history, particularly in the East, you must understand that uh, the, Confederates, uh, the, the Confederacy has won the military history of the war. They have framed the war, the, the framing of the military history of the war was done in the post-war decades. You're saying the Confederacy has won the, the military history. Post, uh -huh. You know, in the sense of uh, Robert E. Lee, uh, I think rightly so, is an American hero. But if you just ask a person on the street, uh, well, what about Robert E. Lee and Grant? Uh, well, if they have a little knowledge, you'll say, well, uh, Lee was a great general and Grant was a butcher. Well, that means that uh, Lee is, in the context of time, have won it. And you look at Gettysburg, most accounts of Gettysburg tend to be framed from the Confederate side. Now, in the sense that's justifiable because Lee made that battle in the sense it was his decisions because he had the initiative that uh, uh, the Union reacted to his decisions. Uh, but one of the things I really wanted to do in this book uh, was to uh, give a full treatment as I can to the Federal Army on the third day as you would in the Confederate Army. What is interesting, you have... Uh pictures of a lot of the key generals on both sides in here, and uh, the Confederate generals are much more household names than the Union generals. Yeah, that, that's another example. You get down example. one or two right. commonly known names on the Union side, and then they're more obscure. Right. You, you, you uh, Grant, Sherman, of course, you know, people love to quote Sherman in war. 
and maybe Phil Sheridan to people, George Custer. I'll just give you an example. Uh, years ago, I used to teach an evening course at Penn State, and I, was, I got to the Civil War, and uh, we were discussing it, and I said, okay, who's the Confederate General at Gettysburg, commander of the Army? Robert E. Lee, they all knew it. All right, who commanded the Union Army? Nobody knew it. A native Pennsylvanian, George G. Meade, but nobody, you know, and uh, uh, that's partially Meade's fault. He banned newspaper <laughs> correspondence from headquarters, so they just ignored him. So he's lost somewhat to history. Well, let's talk about some of the generals. Oh, sure. Talk about General Meade. Well, I think the case, uh, he took command on the morning of uh, June 28th. Uh, Joseph Hooker, the loser at... Uh, uh, Chancellorsville, finally the exasperation, he claimed, he resigned and immediately Lincoln accepted his resignation. And Meade wrote later, or at least I, I quote his son in a letter, Meade was awakened in Frederick, Maryland at 3 a.m. in the morning and he thought he was going to be arrested. Instead, he's handed command of the Army of Potomac. I think you can make a fairly good argument that no commander of an American army, major American army, and the Army of the Potomac was the major American Army, Union Army in the war because of it, the po political ramifications of what would happen with the defeat of that. And Meade uh, acted very cautiously by nature as an engineer, and the battle suited Meade. Uh, he was irascible as the days long. Uh, uh, one of his nicknames was the old snapping turtle. Uh, he had a temporary, I mean, just flared up. Uh, but what he did, I think, at Gettysburg is he, he reverted back to what he'd been as a corps commander in the sense that he turned to his colleagues who he'd just been, you know, as a corps commander five days earlier, said, okay, what do you think? What can we do? Uh, and, he, and he handled that army very well given the circumstances that he was in. And uh, it, it, it's one of the great performances in the Civil War, really. Now, people say, well, no, the true great performances is uh, fighting an offensive battle like Lee did at Chancellorsville. I agree with that. But uh, the circumstances in which Meade find, found himself, uh, you know, th three days before the first clash of arms, and then what he did, uh, it ranks right up there. What happened to Meade after the uh, battle he stayed, of on, he stayed on as commander. Well, Lincoln never, I think, quite forgave him for allowing Lee to escape. But uh, Lincoln didn't understand it. I mean, there's a very famous quote that Lincoln wrote, if we could have reached out and, and grabbed Lee before he crossed the Potomac. Well, Lincoln's sitting in Washington. Meade's on the field. And I know from previous work I've done, uh, if you read the accounts of Union soldiers, once they uh, were able to look at the Confederate lines, at uh, field works that Lee's army had erected around Williamsport, Maryland, they all thanked George Meade for not attacking those works. And another thing that uh, people might find surprising was Thousands of federal soldiers in Meade's army were barefoot. You know, we always think of the Confederates as barefoot and all that. There was thousands of them because they had to, they were forced to make forced marches, if you will, uh, from Virginia to catch up with Lee's army. And so they're, they're, they're in not the best condition besides the enormous casualties. But he stays on his commander. Uh, and then Grant comes in, and when Grant comes in in March of 64, Grant decides he's not staying in Washington. He, he does not want to be near the politicians and he wants to go and be with the Army. So Grant really runs the Army from the spring of 64, though Meade is the, the last commander of the Army of Potomac. But as I, sa I said, he got angry at newspaper correspondents, so he essentially banished them. And they, they decide, okay, George, we won't write about you. 
and and George Meade got lost to uh, history. Hey, you refer to the Army of the Potomac and Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. How was the the overall military divided up there? How many armies were there on the Union side and the Confederate side? Oh, there were well, there was well, there was two very important uh, Confederate armies. There were the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of Tennessee. The Army of Tennessee was the army in the West. There would have been the, the Army of Mississippi. Uh, was the one army that surrendered to Grant at Vicksburg. So there are some other major armies. Uh, Sheridan, uh, excuse me, Sherman, for instance, in his Atlanta campaign, commanded three armies: uh, the Army of the Tennessee, meaning the river, the Army of the Cumberland, and the Army of the Ohio. Uh, but so if you think of Sherman's army, there are actually three. Uh, Lee's army clearly, and and the other thing that happened too with Lee's army in Northern Virginia. By the summer of '63, uh, they were the cause uh, for the Confederacy. Uh, Lee himself and his army embodied it because they were the best hope for the Confederacy to achieve independence. Uh, there were other Union armies, you know, in the southwestern part of the country. Southwestern meaning in Louisiana uh, when they operated down there. There was a Confederate army uh, across the Mississippi, Army Trans-Mississippi, and so forth. But the two major uh, armies would have been in the Virgin Tennessee, Kentucky, and then Georgia areas, and then uh, Virginia, Maryland, and uh, Pennsylvania for the one. So when Grant was put in charge, was he put in charge of the entire military or just the Army of No, he was put in, uh, he was put, they, uh, what they, the, go the go Congress did is they reinstated the rank given to Washington. And uh, Grant became general in chief of all armies and the Navy. Grant. Uh, was the command, Union commander of all the military forces of the Union during the last year of the war. And you said that Meade was the head of the, the Army, Army of, of the Potomac through the, uh, right, the war? Right. The war? Uh, from, well, from June 63 until Appomattox in April 65. So what happened, of course, it, it, it was very difficult. Uh, when Grant came east and he decided to be with the headquarters of the Army of Potomac, you have that layer of command. So when Grant wanted to get something through, it was to go through Meade. And that works not very well for about four or five weeks. And then what you have is Grant and his staff basically taking over and being more directly in charge of the Army. And uh, Meade wasn't shelved. Uh, I don't mean that. Meade was with the Army the whole time. And they operated through the channels as much as they could. But the, uh, the uh, decision to cross the James River, for example, and besiege Petersburg was Grant. Uh, Creating an army in the Shenandoah Valley in '64 was Grant, those kind of things, uh, and so me just me reverted to I guess in today's parlance would probably be the, uh, the the chief of staff to the ranking general. I want to talk a little bit about the strategy of the battle, but uh, first a little bit about you, if we could. Uh, first of all, you're a Center County native. Yes, in fact, I uh, grew up in Reversburg. I live about 15 miles west of the Reversburg at Center Hall today. Uh, my wife's from Center County. Uh, both our children still live in Center County and I have been teaching school at uh, Pennsylvania High School which is happened to be my alma mater. I, well, it was circumstances but I ended up uh, uh, coming back to my uh, high school and teaching. I've been, this is my 33rd year of teaching. Where'd you go to college? I went to Lock Haven University, Lock Haven State College at the time. Uh, very pleased with it. I was a liberal arts major and uh, I think I learned to write there. Uh, 
you know, I had professors that say, uh, you know, paragraphs have to go together, and I thought, well, really? You know, <laughs> you know, and that, and I, I try to keep a narrative flow, and uh, then I, I have a master's degree from Penn State in history. Did you know you wanted to be a historian all along? Uh, no, actually, I'd gone to Lock Haven initially to be. In, I was in pre-law, and uh, I had a wonderful professor in the Civil War, and I I decided that I wanted to teach. I actually wanted to teach in college, and I'd. Uh, planning to uh, go to graduate school. I'd been accepted at the University of Virginia to do graduate studies, and then with the, this is the Vietnam era. I graduated college in 68. Uh, I, I lost my deferment, so I couldn't go, and uh, actually I ended up, I wasn't certified to teach, and I ended up selling insurance for a year, and I was particularly poor at that, and uh, uh, just by luck and circumstances, I was back in my old high school, and I, I was offered a job, actually I taught sixth grade for three years. I was an elementary teacher. They were, in those days they really needed teachers because it was a baby boom and all that. And, uh, and then after three years of that, I, I transferred to the high school. I, I got certified in both elementary and secondary ed, and I've been at the high school ever since. Do you like is, teaching high school? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, I've never regretted not teaching college. In, uh, and also I teach in a very, we're the small school in Center County. We only have like 770 students in grades 7 through 12. It's a very relaxed atmosphere. Um, it's a very, very good place to teach. It always has been, primarily because of the students. Uh, they're, as a whole, they're very good kids. And, uh, and I teach uh, mostly college prep students. I teach an advanced placement course in United States history and an honors course to seniors and a local history course. And now this year I'm going to teach a course in military history, which I hadn't done for a while. But it's a, it's a, it's a very, very good place to teach. And I've, uh, I, I, I am biased, I guess. I keep trying to say that I'm not. I grew up there, but I, you know, you know the people, and uh, they they have a commitment. But we're we're within Center County, and you know, there's Penn State looming, and many people work there. Uh, but there's always been a commitment to trying to get the best education for your child, and uh, it, it's a very good place to work. How many books have you written, counting this one? This is my sixth book. Can you? You mean the yes. titles? Uh, my first book was called From Winchester to Cedar Creek, uh, the 1864 Shenandoah Valley Campaign, which was published in 87. Then I wrote a book on the, the Grey Ghost called Mosby's Rangers. Uh, and I followed that with a biography of uh, General James Longstreet, who's prominent in this book, of course. And then uh, my uh, next book was uh, uh, Custer, The Controversial Life of George Armstrong Custer. And then uh, three years ago, I came out with a book I really enjoyed uh, called A Brotherhood of Valor. It was a, a narrative history of the Confederate Stonewall Brigade and the Union Iron Brigade. I took them through the war together, saw what was happening to these two units, uh, top flight elite units, and what happens to them is the war. They, the war destroys good soldiers, good troops, when you're asked to do so much. And then this is my, uh, this is my, th though this and actually, uh, to be honest about it, I wanted to do this for several years. I just, <laughs> I just finally had to convince my uh, agent to Lowry, and then he, he agreed, and the, the editor took the book. And uh, but that, and I wanted to do that before I did Custer. But uh, so this has been, you know, brimming in me, I guess, for a long time. Which of your books has sold the best? Uh, so far, uh, this book out the door has sold the best. It's in the third printing. Uh, it's, if I may say, it's been nominated for a National Book Award and a Pulitzer. And, uh, but my book that sold the most, hands down, has been my book in James Longstreet. Though this book out the door sold better than Longstreet did. 
Longstreet apparently hit a chord. Uh, to write. It was before the monument is now down at Gettysburg Battlefield and so forth. So, Do your students, uh, are they aware of the fact that you write these books that sell so well? Yes, they are. Uh, they generally ask me how much money I'm making, uh, <laughs> uh, but they are. Uh, and what I found out, I think, with this, and they're, they're teenagers, and, uh, you know, uh, somebody once said to me, you don't take yourself very seriously. I said, I teach teenagers. If, it, if you took yourself so seriously, they'd cut you off at the knees, you know? And they were very refreshing. What I found out, I demand a lot of writing from my students. And I think what it I, is, this, what I do on the side has helped me when I say to them, you know, this isn't very good. And they don't necessarily say, well, well, how do you know it's not very good? And, you know, and I can always say, well, I'm writing or something right now, and uh, I know it's not very good. And uh, in that sense, I, yeah, th they'll ask me certain things about it. Uh, I know what I am also as a teacher is a wealth of stories, as you can see from this book and others. And students like stories. And see, to me, I take my class every year, my seniors every year to Gettysburg. And uh, we talk about tactics uh, and how the battle was played out and how they did that. But what I try to do constantly is these, these little stories because that's their link. We're not going to refight Gettysburg tactically, but there are common human elements of those people who were Gettysburg, from the civilians who were in town uh, to the soldiers there. That's our link to them. That's our shared commonality, our hum humanity. And so when I tell these inter human interest stories, I, I try to show them that I keep telling them it's, uh, it's far more fascinating fiction. I also tell them that the one subject you will walk out the door with as a companion is history. And they look at you askance. I said, no, history is always part of you. When you first vote, you're going to vote for a candidate based upon previous people who have held the office or something, like the president. You're, you're going to make a judgment on who's, who was the best kind of president we had and you're going to vote for somebody you think is close to that or you like or suits that. And that's, what, that's the kind of thing. And, and to me, uh, I, I hope they, I'm, well, I make my best students read a book and do a review of a book, a critique of it. Uh, and I hope maybe when they leave my classes in years from now, they'll read a book and they'll remember the class. Or, and I hope they vote. I even tell my, you know, the other thing I want you to do if some of you can is run for office uh, in, in towns. Be in a borough council where they don't pay any money. Give something back to the country. And, uh, and if you can show them valor, but I also show them cowardice. I mean, that's uh, a human chronicle. I mean, uh, some people failed tests. Other people went far and beyond the call of duty. And, uh, you know, the world we're living in right now, we can see that, you know, many-fold. So. You mentioned this gentleman who you wrote a biography of, uh, General Longstreet. Uh, what can you tell me about him and his performance at Gettysburg in particular? It's... His performance and his relationship with Gettysburg, arguably in Civil War history, is, is maybe the most controversial thing. Again, it goes back, certainly in Confederate history. Longstreet was Lee's senior corps commander. In fact, uh, well, Stonewall Jackson had been mortally wounded at Chancellorsville two months earlier and died on May 10th. Uh, Longstreet actually outranked uh, Jackson. Uh, he was promoted a day ahead of Jackson in October 62 by Lee. Uh, Longstreet believed that the problem for the Confederates was the fact that in the spring of 63, they were running out of manpower. 
Now, he, he agreed with Lee that they had to take the war north and they had to do these things. Uh, but once they got to the battlefield, and it began in the late afternoon of July 1st, Longstreet came onto the field and he, he surveyed the ground. They were in Seminary Ridge, probably near the seminary today. We're not, we're not we're certain, quite certain about that. And he scanned the ground across as well as he could. It was much more open, and you could see Cemetery Hill. If you look closely, you could see the ridge down there in Culp's Hill. And uh, he told uh, Lee that we have them where we want them. We just won a great victory in a sense. Now we can uh, move by our flank and uh, position ourselves between them and Baltimore, Washington, and make them attack us. Lee said, no, no, we're not doing that. And I, to be honest about Longstreet's plan wasn't a very good idea. Uh, Lee didn't have the cavalry there to screen it. He didn't even know where the seven, five of the seven Union Corps were. But that starts it. And then Longstreet will object to, on July 2nd to Lee resuming the offensive again. He, he reiterates this. And then on July 3rd, he is, you know, in words, basically para paraphrase, once Lee tells him what he's going to do with the, becomes Pickett's charge, or Longstreet's assault probably is more accurate, Longstreet tells him that no 15,000 men can take that position, General. Uh, but Lee says he believes they can, and the details have been left to Longstreet. Now, what happens to Longstreet is really post-war, in a sense, is his best friend before the war was Ulysses S. Grant. In fact, Grant marries a cousin of Longstreet's. So when Grant became president, Longstreet was in the business in New Orleans, but like many Confederates, many Southerners, the, the, the economic conditions in the South were terrible. Uh, Grant offers him a job. By doing that, he has to turn to Republicans. And that was, uh, that was uh, uh, the thing. You were a pariah in the South to do that. Is that when he became controversial the, as after, a general? After the war. After the fact? And then there was, once Lee died in 70, very shortly afterwards, some of Lee's other officers, uh, not notable officers, certainly his artillery commander, William Pendleton, who was, I would hope, a better minister than he was a general, because he certainly was a good, very good general. Uh, he goes ahead and uh, uh, says that Lee Longstreet, for example, was ordered to attack at sunrise on July 2nd. It's complete fabrication. And then one thing led to another. And then, of course, Longstreet was not a very able rider, and he started to defend himself. Well, you can't blame because Gettysburg became, you know, as Faulkner said in his one book, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, July 3rd, Southern hopes are still there, and then, you know, with the repulsive pickets charge, Southern hopes are over. Uh, he's the one who becomes blamed for losing the battle that cost the Confederacy the war. So you, you, would, ex you would defend yourself. You would expect him, but he didn't defend himself very well. And, uh, and to be honest about it, the controversy raised for a century really until finally the 60s, uh, one historian put to rest the Sunrise Order, which frankly never made sense. Lee would not attack an enemy who didn't know where he was without checking it. So, you know, but uh, it's, still, it's still there. It's uh, Longstreet uh, uh, stirs controversy, stirs that. Uh, and his performance at Gettysburg, he had problems with it. Uh, I, I'd be the first to admit that. There are certain things he should have done, particularly in July 2nd. Uh, his instincts and his judgment was clearly right in July 3rd, but then, uh, you know, as I deal with in the, in the book, the, the, the unfortunate thing for Confederate command in the 3rd is the fact that we don't have these great documents. Lee didn't issue written orders as such, and so you can't trace it. And what, who was responsible? Well, Longstreet was responsible for the salt and reserve troops, and uh, he, he sent two brigades in the reserve 
of the reserve, but he stopped others from going forward. They were advanced. He stopped then. You know, we can't answer those questions definitively yet as historians unless we come up with these documents we don't know about. But uh, he is, he was a great, he was a good, uh, good soldier, uh, bull of a man. Uh, and, uh, but this is the controversy in Confederate history. This is the, Lee Longstreet at Gettysburg is probably the single most uh, important controversy to people. Now, I want to show this map because this is actually the first map I've seen of Gettysburg that I act, that I was able to understand. And can you pull out a little bit and show the whole thing from top to bottom, Rob? And this, uh, can you explain what we're looking at here? Now, these black dots along here are the Union armies, and the Confederate armies are kind of wrapped around them. Exactly. Uh, that was one of the great virtues of the ground that the Army of Potomac would hold at Gettysburg. Yeah, you probably, well, I'm sure many of your viewers have heard that, and you probably, it's a fishhook line. Uh, it's a line that uh, the, the, the barb is there at uh, Culp's Hill, and it extends over to Cemetery Hill, then the long shank of the fish uh, hook uh, goes down to a uh, little round top. So this is Culp's Hill around here, right. and it goes around the little round And it's top. a convergent line. So in other words, and that's what Meade does. In fact, he almost cost his army the battle. Uh, on late in July 2nd, he, he orders all the troops off Culp's Hill. And if he had done that, because the Confederates would launch an attack there, and one brigade was left behind to fought magnificently, uh, the, it would have been as important. Culp's Hill was as important as Little Round Top. I think with the movie Gettysburg, everybody thinks it's just Little Round Top was the key. But actually, Culp's Hill was too. Conversely, for Lee and the Confederates to move troops, you're moving it on the outer arc of it. So his line was like five miles long, where Lee, or excuse me, Meade, could shift troops from one position to another. For example... They could move back and forth in this right. area here where uh, we had to move all the way around. On the morning of July 3rd, Lee issued, or, uh, excuse me, Meade issued orders to his subordinates that essentially placed a reserve force of about 13,500 men from units that had been battered on the first and second days but they were behind the lines in Southern Cemetery Ridge and so forth, that they could move, and they were under orders to be prepared to move in case of a Confederate assault on any portion of the line. He could do that readily because of his position. That's why I think increasingly our military and other military, uh, they were returning more and more to Gettysburg because it's a great place to study how terrain clearly can affect the outcome of a battle. Did, did the Union win because they had better placement on the field? Uh, yeah, yes, as much as that. They were fighting a defensive battle. Uh, you're also looking at an army who had been humiliated, and you read their accounts, and I've put numbers of them in there. Uh, when the battle's over, for example, uh, they think this is redemption. Uh, this, the famous uh, scene that they do in the movie Gettysburg, which was true with the repulse of... Uh, Pickett's charge, the Union soldiers up there are shouting Fredericksburg because they had had to charge up a long slope at Fredericksburg in December of 62 and were slaughtered by the Confederates. Uh, the ground favored them. Uh, the interior lines favored them. All those factors. And then also I think uh, they weren't left down finally by their commanders. And uh, those things came together to Gettysburg besides I think the grit of the Union soldiers fighting in northern soil we, we have to win this battle. And uh, Confederate mistakes occurred. When you're, whenever you're going to try to uh, launch an offensive attack, uh, you're going to have, uh, you know, we, we like, today we start moving these things around like they're chessmen, but the, we're talking humans here. 
and moving men around and so forth. And yet the Confederates came very close, for example, on July 2nd to breaking the Union line. But Meade had enough troops at hand that he could pull in. I remember one soldier wrote about it, a Confederate said, he said, my God, do we have to fight the entire universe? And it seemed that way to them as they're going forward and wrecking one federal command. Next thing you know, another federal brigade usually or a regiment perhaps is appearing. So the ground clearly favored Meade, clearly favored him. Did they end up in that position deliberately, or was it kind of just by luck? It just so happened, right. Uh, well, July 1st, they were swept from north and west of Gettysburg through the town in the afternoon of July 1st. And one, uh, when uh, Oliver Howard, uh, 11th Corps commander, came there, he, uh, he was in charge. He was ranking commander because John Reynolds had been killed. And he posted brigade and uh, cannon on Cemetery Hill, which you would. Any trained soldier would see you have to hold this hill right here. And the roads came there, so he held it. Uh, Meade, on the other hand, sent Winfield Scott Hancock, another Pennsylvanian, probably the best corps commander in the Army. Uh, he came and took command, and he agreed. And that's where they rallied late in the afternoon of July, 2nd, July 1st. And from there, the, the, they would converge on the roads that would, would lead both armies to Gettysburg. And then late on the night, uh, evening of uh, July 1st, they occupied Culp's Hill. But Little Round Top was not occupied well until late in this July 2nd. They started to extend the line down. But when Meade came, he asked the generals, is this good ground? And they said, yes, it is good ground and we should, we should stand here. And uh, they were trained, you know, these were veteran officers and it was good ground to hold. And those set of circumstances, and that was one of the objections Longstreet had to it, because he was a trained soldier too and he could see that ground and we're gonna have to dislodge them from ground that favored them. And, and usually when you do that, it's very costly and very bloody to do so. I wanna show this map one more time, just to make it clear that when Pickett's charge happened, it was along this part here, is that right? In the, the center of the line, yes, correct. That part there. Right. Which is Cemetery Hill, the Cemetery, Cemetery Ridge. Ridge. And the opposite side of the valley there is Seminary Ridge. R right. Okay. I just wanted to show that part uh, because that's essentially the, the capstone of, uh, of your book. Yes. Um, well, a couple of questions occurred to me while I was reading this, and they're, they're not related to uh, what we were talking about, but I have to ask them. Uh, question number one is, um, the, can you talk about the artillery? Because they play, that plays a key role in Pickett's Charge, and what, what the cannons were like and what the shells were like. And how, how far could the cannons shoot? Well, the Confederates had, for example, two cannons. They were British major called Whitworth. I, if I understand it right, they, they could shoot three miles. But generally speaking, uh, uh, the rifled cannon uh, that the Federals had more of, heavier three-inch rifles, a cannon, which you wanted, and they shot an elongated shell. Uh, the most standard uh, cannon you'd have, and you see them today, Gettysburg particularly, they're the green ones, you know, the, from the weathering. They're, the, the, they're called Napoleons. Uh, they were 12-pound howitzers. They were awful deadly in short range. I mean, they were... Uh, they could fire 800 or so yards, but where they were particularly good because of the wide barrel and so forth was they would fire canister, which uh, was, it could, it could vary in size, but generally one-inch slugs packed in sawdust. And you could pack anywhere from like 35 slugs to 49 slugs in a can or canister. Soldiers called it canned hellfire. And uh, that's what faced Pickett's men at the end. Uh, but 
the, can the artillery played a more critical role. Uh, one of the key flaws of Lee's plan, he pitted his worst arm, the artillery. And the reason it's the worst arm, not that they didn't have able artillerists and officers, uh, in fact, Longstreet's uh, artillery commander, E. Porter Alexander, probably had one of the great intellects in the whole army. He was a very bright young man. Uh, but they had faulty ammunition. Uh, they didn't have uh, the, the, the better cannon in the sense of the rifled cannon. Uh, and they're pitting it against what was clearly uh, the best arm of the Federal Army, and that was their artillery, also against a man who really, as much as anybody, the word is some is overused, and I'm, I might be overusing it, uh, not as genius, but Henry Hunt, the artillery commander, was probably the genius when it came to artillery. And Hunt believed once the morning hours progressed, uh, you know, this is an afternoon assault, this is, so it builds up. Hunt became convinced that they were going to assault the Confederate, the, the Federal lines. He wasn't sure, but he was convinced, so he did all the preparations. And what Lee's plan was, essentially, broken down very simply, was he had to get the infantry. Pickett's and Pettigrew's men, nine, uh, nine brigades, across 1,400 yards of ground without suffering terrible losses or disorganization from the counterfire of Confederate artillery, excuse me, Federal artillery. So to do that, Lee decided to have this mass cannonade on parallel in the Army's history against their artillery. That was their target in the cannonade. Now, whatever collateral damage, use our words today, that you would do to the infantry was good, but the target was to silence or to disable as many federal cannon as they could. And they succeed. I think they either because of some of the cannon, federal cannon ran out of ammunition, or they were actually disabled. Uh, there were 34 cannons removed from the line. However, Henry Hunt, between the time the cannonade ends, and if Confederate infantry comes forward in the span of, say, 15 to 20 minutes, Hunt replaced them with a, almost 12 batteries, which would have been almost 40, say, 45 cannon. So every one that was lost, Hunt replaced. And then the, the, the Confederates just, uh, just never had a, a, a chance coming across here. I, one of the great quotes I found in a book was, uh, when I was doing research, was a member of the 14th Virginia. He was in Louis Armstead's brigade. And he writes that as they're, and in fact, I titled the chapter, if you see the advance, as they're coming across the, the and that what they did, they, they had two kinds of fire on them. They had uh, fire these regular cannonballs that we think of, be a rolling fire where they hit the ground and try to just knock over men. Uh, the other thing was, of course, exploding shells. How would they explode? What would cause them to explode? Well, they had a, a fuse on them. And you would estimate the range, and then you would cut the fuse. And as they're fired, the fuse would ignite and say at uh, uh, a range of, you estimate, 800 yards, you'd cut the fuse to that distance, and if it exploded, it would rain down shrapnel on them. Uh, see, that's where the Confederates had their problem. They had uh, faulty fuses. They weren't very good. And, uh, and so they're hit by both. They're hit by this rolling fire along the ground, and then they're hit by these shell fire, and men are dismembered. Uh, and as I said, the, the the, the one Confederate soldier said I, I, he remembered seeing body parts flying like feathers before the wind. It was that gruesome, and, that, and that's what they faced. And then when they got to the Emmitsburg Road, that's when the Union infantry came into play, and that's where the barrier of the, the, the fences were 
that it stopped them, their momentum. They had to cross the fences, and then they became target for Federal infantry. And then the, the Union cannons switched to these one-inch canister slugs. There's a county I have in there that, that and you, you just you marvel at the bravery, uh, especially in both sides. But like Pickett's and Pettigrew's men, they knew crossing that road, their chances, of, if you're going to continue up that slope, your chances of making back are slim. And there's one where it's, it's clearly documented on both sides that at one point the Confederates were closing on this low stone wall in front of the trees, and they saw the Confederate Union battery back there preparing to fire canister. They're veterans, and they were waiting for it. And all they did was just lean their head forward and bow like you go into a gale. But it's a gale of lead that, uh, by one account, said when it was over with, there wasn't a Confederate standing in the range of where they fired the cannon at. And that, that's incredible, incredible bravery. Uh, to do such a thing and to know full well what you're doing and your response to it is to lean into like it's a rainstorm, you know. When, when Pickett's, well, it wasn't just Pickett's army, but when the Confederate army marched across the field toward the Union army, why did they walk instead of running? Well, you, you have to, first of all, you have to, you would have been exhausted and an attack would have been spent. So you're going to go to a, a, a common time where you're going to get across as fast as you can. It took them about... Well, they were delayed at the Emmonsburg Road, but by the distance, it would have, if they would have just been marching at that time, it would have made it in about 18 to 19 minutes. And, and you want to be able to deliver a blow and to keep organized. That's the other thing. Uh, that's where, for example, the technology of war uh, had overcome this. Uh, this is one of the last charges like this in the war. Now, there's some others similar later on. But not in this, uh, one of the more famous ones is very late in war at Franklin, Tennessee. But you're going to make this assault and get there so your men aren't winded, so they can go up the slope and deliver your, your volleys and break through. Because the goal was to break through the line and then f fan out, and then your reserves would pour through and you'd break the Union line. At what point did the Confederates start shooting? Uh, they didn't really start shooting until they got to, most of them, until they got to the other side of the Emmitsburg Road. Uh, in that range of about 200, 250 yards. Uh, the Springfield or Enfield, uh, Confederate, many Confederates carried Enfield rifles, which were British made. They also carried many, many Springfield rifles, uh, 58 caliber, uh, that were Union made because they had captured so many in the early days of the war and in 62 from the battlefields. So consequently, they were well armed too. Uh, they were a very good weapon for killing at 300 yards. They're extremely good in the side of 100. But yet most soldiers, uh, uh, the estimate is, and nobody knows this for sure, but you hear writings where for every soldier killed in the Civil War in combat, they shot his weight in lead because they just missed him so often. And the other peculiar thing about it is the bullet actually rose. So the men were told to shoot low because the bullet would, would rise up and go over. If you shot for their chest at 100 yards, the bullet would pass over their head. They were taught to shoot low. And the other factor, too, that no television or no movie could really deal with because you wouldn't see it is the volume of smoke. And if you remember from the book here, there's accounts where officers are down on their knees or bending over looking under this curtain of smoke and they yelling for the men to shoot it. The first time you see legs, just shoot because they couldn't see the full man because of just the black powder smoke. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. And there's two things I have to ask about. One is, um, how did they sleep, and how much sleep did they get? Because the battle was three days, and uh, what did they eat, and when did they eat? Well, they got very little sleep. Uh, I actually start my book very briefly with an account of an officer from Vermont, never been in the battlefield, 
and he was trying to get sleep the night of July 2nd, he heard this noise he had never heard before, and it was a moaning of wounded men. It was like a rolling over the crest where he was. They slept on the ground, they got whatever shelter they could, if they had their knapsacks with them or blankets, and veterans were pretty well stripped down. They always had a pan and they always had a coffee pot and a coffee cup. Uh, the Federal Army actually was hurting for food. Uh, it's just surprising. On the morning of July 2nd, the most important things of the Federals were, were food. Where the Confederates, on the other hand, seemed to be pretty well. They had the wagons up and so forth. Pickett's division wasn't on the, uh, on the field until the morning of the 3rd. They had cooked breakfast, so they were fed. Uh, but that's what they did, yeah, and they just slept in the ground. Officers might uh, uh, find a barn or something or house, but at Gettysburg, by the night of July 2nd, every barn and house behind the lines were, was being used by surgeons for hospitals, so you would have slept in the ground. There were people whose job was just to bring food in and cook it for the troops? No, actually shoot? not necessarily cook it. Well, they ate, uh, you know, at that point they would have been having rations and they would have been eating what's called hardtack. It's awful. It's on lead and flour. It was in like a three-inch square and it was just awful. Uh, what they tried to do is they had a little bit of pork or something that were issued, they would just cook it in the grease to give it flavor. Uh, but what the supply trains had not caught up with the Army, and that's why they were having problems on the morning of the 3rd eating. And uh, count after count, all they wanted to do was, well, I think one soldier said, <laughs> you know, we, we tightened our belt as far as we could, then we, we pulled it another notch. I mean, it was just, the thing that helped them, on the other hand, was tobacco. You're talking a pipe smoking cigar-smoking army, but primarily for those who smoke pipes, that helped to ease the hunger pains and so forth. But some of the men had very little to eat until probably the morning or morning of July 4th, and yet they did what they did. Well, we only have about a minute left, but I want to, can you give about a one-minute description of the, at the battle, at the Gettysburg Battlefield, there's a place called the East Cavalry Battlefield that seems like it's away from everything else and has nothing else to do with the battle. What happened there? Well, that's where Jeb stored, uh, went around the flank of uh, the Union Army. I believe, there was no coordination, they say that, where, you know, Stuart was gonna be in position when Pickett broke through. That, there's no evidence of that. Uh, but he was probably heading for two taverns of Baltimore Pike, uh, getting the rear of Pickett's army, Baltimore Pike's their main supply line. He is met there by David Gregg, Pennsylvanian. But the man who emerges in this field, of course, is George Armstrong Custer. This is his first battle as a brigade commander. He's dressed in a black velvet uniform. It was striking. 23-year-old general. 23-year-old general, who ends up being the youngest major general in our history at 25. It's, uh, and it is this, and this, why this is also, because of Gaysburg, this is one of the cavalry charges that you think of when you watch a Western movie or an, whether on horseback, because most times cavalry actually fought dismounted. And, but you're right, no, very, very few people visited, and it's probably the most pristine area of the Gaysburg battlefield. I, I can go out there many times and, uh, my wife and I go out and visit there. I walk around, and I'm the, we're the only people there. You have another book in the works? Yes, I do. I started researching a book. It's uh, on the Army of the Potomac. Yeah. This is the cover of the book we've been talking about, Gettysburg Day 3. Jeffrey Word, I wish we had more time. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.